said, you can get your Bible out or your phone or your tablet or you can pull up the notes online on our website or our Calvary app. We're going to be in Genesis 47 tonight. Um, we were in it a little bit last week when Pastor Norm was here and he taught 1 through 12. And in the passage he was teaching, if you remember, Joseph, the famine had started that Pharaoh dreamed about, and he moved his family to Egypt, and they went to an area called Goshen. But our title tonight is called Don't Lose Hope. It's going to apply to the people in, in the story, but also many of us in this room or watching online or in the commons, Maybe you're losing hope over some big thing in your life. It could be a health problem. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a relationship problem. And you just don't see a way out of it. Well, tonight we'll learn some principles, I think, biblical principles, that will help us keep our hope when there doesn't seem to be any hope looking at our circumstances. So let's get started, verse 13. So what was going on in Goshen when they got there? Verse 13 says, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was so severe. Both Egypt and Canaan, or the promised land, wasted away because of this famine. Joseph collected, remember he's in charge, all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were all buying. He brought it to Pharaoh's palace, all these um, monies. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, though, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. In other words, we're hungry, we're desperate, help us. Why should we die before your very eyes? Our money's all gone. So if you remember this famine when Joseph had that, he interpreted the dream, it lasted seven years. So this is still in the early portion, but it's already gotten pretty bad. The people are desperate, and they really are feeling and looking at their circumstances and saying, we're going to all die of starvation. Our only hope is what can Joseph do for us? So let's look in 16 what Joseph tells them. He said, bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is now gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, and their donkeys. He brought them through that year, in other words, that entire year, with food in exchange for their livestock. So the first year was money, now it's food. When that year was over, though, in verse 18, it says, they came to him the following year and says, we cannot hide from the Lord the fact that since our money is gone, our livestock is gone, and it belongs to you, there's nothing left, left for our Lord to take, in a way, except our bodies and our land. So they're really getting desperate now. Everything's gone. They see no way out of this you know, crisis so they're so desperate, they're saying, we will trade us, take us, we'll, we'll enslave ourselves and our land because we got to eat. And I don't know if you've ever been on a fast, and this is not a fast, this is a famine, but when you go hungry for a while, you, you kind of want food pretty bad. So I can only imagine what these poor people are, are feeling like. And they kind of have the same request in verse 19, why should we perish before your eyes we in our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and then we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So they're proposing this. Then they add, but give us seed so we may not live and die, and the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land, every square inch, it sounds like, for Pharaoh. 
The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And then Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Well, if you remember this time period, you know, the Pharaoh of Egypt was considered like a god, to them anyway. A false god, a little g-god, but they thought he was God. But he did not own everything. They still had property, possessions. Well, at this moment, because of these three years of terrible famine, now he does own everything. He owns their money, he owns their animals, and now he's got their, their land and really themselves. Which brings up our first thing to write if you're taking notes tonight. This applies to us. When times are tough, even if we're desperate, we feel desperate, there's no way out that we can see, we can't ever lose our hope because our hope is in the Lord. Our circumstances may look grim and dire and almost unfixable to our human eyes, but you know, our human eyes are attached to our human brain and we don't know all the answers. We don't know how to fix things, but we have a God that does. And he can fix any impossible problem because Scripture also tells us nothing is impossible with the Lord. But maybe that's you tonight. Maybe once again, I hinted on this when we prayed to start. You've, you've got this big thing in your life and you just don't see a way out. Well, I would encourage you. Our title, we're going to repeat this over and over tonight. Don't lose hope. Turn to God. Pray, ask, intercede. Trust that he will get you through no matter how big this problem is, that he will make a way where there is no way. Remember, there was no way through the Red Sea either. What'd he do? Split it wide open. God can make a way when we can't see one. Back to our text, verse 22. However, he did not buy the land, that would be Joseph, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. But Joseph said to, the, to everybody else, to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. So if, if we read this, it kind of sounds a little bit like Joseph is being a little hard or harsh because he's taken almost everything, their money, their land, their animals. Now he's even put them into bondage. But if you look at it kind of with a bigger picture, really Joseph is being kind, and I'll explain why. And we kind of just read a little bit. You know, he gave them seed. He really didn't have to do that. He, he traded, you know, food for animals, money, and then land in themselves. But in this last stage, he gave them back seed. And now he's going to add a, a kind of a, a restriction on that gift, though. And that sounds harsh, too, but it's really not. Uh, let me read it. Verse 24, it says, and assuming they're going to take this seed and plant it, he says, when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. But the other four fifths, most of it, you may keep as seed for the fields next year and then also as food for yourselves, your households, and your children. Now that may sound, like I said, kind of a little bit harsh again. Like he's, he's taken everything, now he's given them seed, but he wants, you know, like a, a tax. Uh, he wants one-fifth. And I'm not great at math, I've said that before, but I do know one-fifth is 20%. So think of it like a 20% tax bracket. And interestingly enough, not everybody, and it's an average, but in America, the, the most common tax bracket most people are in is 24%. Now some are lower, you pay less, praise the Lord, 
but some people pay higher. Uh-oh, woe on them. So 24% is the most common tax bracket. So 20% is a little lower than our American most common number, so it's not so bad after all. And in a way, by the way Joseph is behaving in this story, especially this chapter, he's really being a great role model for integrity. You know, Joseph is known as a man of great character, great integrity. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. Well, here's why, in case maybe you're wondering why I say that. He's in a second to Pharaoh position. He's almost got unlimited power. The whole country's desperate. They're starving. He really could do whatever he wanted in this situation. He has enormous power, second only to Pharaoh himself. But he never lets it go to his head. He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't abuse the people. Yes, he just kind of made some transactions that look kind of maybe harsh on the surface, but really... I'll make a case, and again, he's being kind. And I'll give you a couple of ways. I'm I'm not going to put them on screen, but here's three ways that Joseph did not take advantage of this situation, being the second man in charge. He didn't overcharge or increase the price. And if you're into economics, there's a thing, you know, called supply and demand. What happens when supply is really low? Prices go really high, don't they? You know, look at the gas pump if you need an example of that. It's all about supply and demand. The bigger the demand, the higher the price. Joseph, from all we, the best we can tell in Scripture, never raised the prices. He just gave them the equal value from pre-famine time. He, he traded food for money, food for animals, food for land. He also, as best we can tell anyway, did not show favoritism, didn't take any kickbacks, didn't take bribes. Then they would call him Joseph the politician But he doesn't do that. He also never gets prideful, even though he's in this super-duper high position, second to Pharaoh. And I would say most of all, the most important one, he never lets it affect his faith. You know, he always gives credit to God. It's always God, 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 and glory to God. He made sure to point everything toward the Father because he knew who the blessing came from. But Joseph really led this, you know, he got thrown in a pit and hauled off. He really led a blessed life for the most part by being elevated like this, which brings up our next thing you want to write if you're taking notes. Sometimes a great blessing may test our integrity more than going through a trial will. In other words, a trial can test you, of course, but you almost become desperate for the Lord. You know, you're interceding, you're praying. But when things are going great, we don't mean to, but sometimes we can forget how we got there if we're not careful. In other words, we think that we did it all. Look what I did. I got this great degree. I got this great job. I got this great house. Maybe I should skip church this Sunday. You know, you don't mean to, but then you wake up in six months and wonder what happened, and you feel like you've kind of wandered off the path that God had you on because you let this success almost get to your head. Joseph never does that. So be careful in times of blessing. You know, we we think we want this great blessing, and we all would love to be blessed, but with great blessing sometimes comes great responsibility as far as Don't let it go to our heads. And Joseph is, once again, a great role model for that. 
He's also showing that I would make a case two great characteristics that aren't you know, readily seen, mercy and giving. And you might be wondering, as I said, giving, giving, Dave, it looks like he's doing lots of taking to me because he was taking their stuff. But, but once again, you got to look deeper a little bit. Remember the first year he exchanged for their money food for the whole year, food for the whole year. But think about what the conditions are. You know, in a famine, is money really valuable? Not really. Food is. Think about our own country, and not many of us were born in this room, but, you know, there might be a couple of you. Think about the Great Depression. What happened to the banks and the stock markets in the Great... We, we all read the history about it, at least. Money was, like, worthless, wasn't it? And, and people were desperate to have food and to live day to day. The money was, like, paper stuff that was no good. In famine, it would be sort of the same thing. So he, he kind of was, he was taking, but he was also giving food for really something that he probably, he could have manipulated prices, done all kind of stuff. Then that second year, let's look more at that one. Remember, he took their animals for a year's worth of food. Well, same principle in a way. During a famine, what's going to happen to your animals? Like, in other words, who's going to get the food first and the water first? Your children and yourself or your donkey and your horse and your sheep? The animals would have eventually withered away to nothing, been, you know, really horrible, you know, looking stick figures likely. So the animals really didn't have a real a long-term value either. They would eventually starve to death and died and been worthless. He traded a year's worth of food for the animals when he didn't really have to. And even if you go to the last one, you know, he took their land. I'll go back to the Great Depression and that. Remember there was a thing in our country they called the Dust Bowl? It, it was big and the, you know, you know the, the land was parched. It was dry. It got so like a desert that you know, Dust Bowl would blow by and all the dirt went to the other states. The land itself wasn't even fit to be farmed. So even if you own land, it would have been essentially worthless. I think the same principle would apply here. He took their land that was eventually going to be parched, dry, and worthless because of this famine and traded a year's worth of food. So he is kind of giving, if you think about it. But maybe the best part is the last part. You know, it says in Scripture, as I read it, they went into bondage. But really, I would make the case he kind of gave them a job. You know, he put them to work. He gave them honor. Because if you talk to people like during that Great Depression, a lot of them wanted to go to work and there was no jobs to be had. And sometimes if there's nothing to do and you've got no job, you're not productive, you just feel like you become almost in your mind, I'm not good for anything. He kept them productive. They were working their own land, even though Pharaoh now owned it. He gave them seed. They could farm. They could grow things. They could produce things. And they kept their family alive by really with their job. But really the best way, I think, to see how the people perceived all this, because really the best test, how did they think about Joseph? Let's look at verse 25. It says, you, Joseph, have saved our lives. So it's not just me that doesn't see him as a taker. They think he saved their lives, literally. Then look what they say next. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage. In other words, we're willing to be in bondage to Pharaoh. So they're not mad, they're not upset, they're almost grateful, and they even literally say he saved them. They almost see him as their protector. So we're going to 
dial back Genesis a little bit and look at um, chapter 45. It'll be on the screen. This is Genesis 45. Let's, let's look at a verse that'll be familiar to us. Remember when Joseph and his brothers first met, Joseph said, it's okay. You know, what you meant for bad, God was in charge. Let's read it. It says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. We're reading about these many survivors right now. Look what he says next. It was not you who sold me, put me in the pits. It was not you who sent me here, but God. But God. God had a bigger purpose, a bigger picture. He has made me like a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So he's given credit to God back in 45, even before this happened, because he knew because of the dream what was coming. So he's always pointing toward the Lord. He just did it right then. Even though you meant to harm me, God was in charge. I trust him. It looked kind of dire. It looked grim to Joseph, I'm sure, in that pit, but he never lost his hope. He always had his hope in the Lord. And in Scripture, by the way, Egypt is a picture of the world. And our unsaved world, a lot of times, has no hope. That's why we need to be right where you are, sitting in a room, hearing God's Word and learning the principles here on Wednesday, on the weekend, in your quiet time. Our hope is in the Lord, isn't it? Because out those doors, if we're honest, there is not a lot of hope. It doesn't look good out there right now. But it always looks good in God's Word. Because He has a heart for us, He loves us, and we put our hope in Him and His goodness. Well, I've pointed out as we've been through Genesis, if you've been here on some of these nights, I know most of you have, there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus. You know, he's not Jesus, but they have a lot of similarities. We, we, we read three in verse 25 as I read that verse, and I'm going to revisit a couple of them. The people members said, you saved our lives. Well, what did Jesus do for us? Didn't he save our lives? So there's a similarity. Then the people said to Joseph, may we, faint, may we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. Well, as Christians, that's our job. Don't we all want to find favor in the eyes of our Lord? Because he's our Lord. They are kind of misguided thinking their Lord is Jesus. I mean, Joseph, excuse me. But we want to find favor and hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the favor we're talking about. Then last but not least, the people said, we will be in bondage. We will willingly go into bondage for, under Pharaoh. Well, we would never say that about a human being, but as a Christ follower, aren't we kind of willingly in bondage to Christ? We, we, you know, Paul called himself a bondservant, a bondslave. That's what we are. But it's got to be willingly. We want to be under our master and Lord. That's what being a Christ follower, it's putting our will aside and giving our life, our purpose, our ideas, our dreams, our hopes to Jesus and be his willing servant. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's one of the benefits, once again, of being a Christ follower. So back to our text. Verse 26 says, Joseph established it as a law, and that was that one-fifth, concerning the land in Egypt, and it's still enforced today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. 
Probably not in effect nowadays. I didn't bother looking it up because they don't have any more pharaohs. Um, it was only the land of the priests that did not become pharaohs. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen, and we learned a little bit about that last week. They acquired property there, and look what it says next. They were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So the Egyptians are starving, probably some Canaanites too, but look at the Israelites. They acquire property, and they're increasing greatly in number. So they're multiplying. They're fruitful. Well, how did they get property in this famine? Scripture's not clear, so this will be my, you know, sometimes I speculate up here, but I'll make it really clear. This is Dave's opinion. But in my opinion, likely, you know, think of what Joseph is to Pharaoh, second in command. It's likely, I think anyway, that Joseph probably has some land too, not just Pharaoh, because of his position. So my belief is he likely gave some to his family, his brothers, these Israelite scripture references. But either way, they're being blessed. That's the bottom. Because it doesn't really matter where they got it. But to me, that's an easy way to kind of figure out how it must have happened. Well, let's talk about the fruitful, though. The fruitful part. It says they were fruitful and increased greatly. Not just increased, increased greatly. Well, I already said a while ago, I'm not big on math. But there is people that are really good at math, engineer-type Bible scholars. Um, Rick Hallman's an engineer, by the way. So if you have an engineering question, ask Pastor Rick. Um, and he's not just an engineer, he's a rocket scientist. He used to work at the Space Center, that's why I said that. That's where we kind of stole him from back when Calvary was one little room over there. But back to the math. Jacob had four wives. Remember, if you remember Genesis, it's Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. Well, by chapter 47, Jacob and those four wives, their family had grown to 100 people. Because there's genealogies in Genesis. Well, these math experts have worked that out. That's a 6% yearly growth rate. Which, you know, almost reminds me, here's why I don't like math. Remember back when you were in school and you get these problems like, you're in a car in Melbourne and you go 35 miles an hour and your best friend, Les Tallahassee, and he's going 85. Where would, what town would you end up in the same time together? I don't know and I don't care. I go where my car needs to go. But anyway, that's a bad math joke. Um, but take that 6%. That, that is a true fact, by the way. And if you apply that, this fruitful and greatly increased, these same Bible scholars have calculated by the time of Exodus, you know, the next chapter, the Moses, the Red Sea parting, the Exodus of the, the nation, that same 6% birth rate multiplied over and over and over and over and over you end up with around 2 million people, 2 million. And we've heard maybe that's a number. I've heard it before. 2 million was probably the likely number of the people. And that may be just the men. I've heard it said even the women and children could have been even greater. But that's how they got that number, this 6% birth rate. So that clearly that's pretty fruitful, wouldn't you say, from four wives and a man to now 2 million you know, by the exodus. So God is blessing the socks off his people is the bottom line. Let's see what happens to Jacob. Verse 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. So he had a very long life. You know, we're getting toward the end of these long lifespans, 147. You know, they found people over in Japan that are 122, 124, something like that. 
So this is not that much longer than the Japanese lady. But Jacob was blessed. He, he had a long life, big family, a lot of cattle, possessions, things like that, which brings up our next point to write down. Earthly success, no matter how good it is, how big it is, how much stuff we have, it can't bring eternal happiness. It, it just can't. There's never enough. Look what the next part says. Eternal success only comes from obeying God. Amen. And that's what Joseph is known for. Always staying obedient to God. Even his, you know, extraordinary worldly success of being second only to Pharaoh. But then um, verse 29 it says, When the time drew near for Israel, or Jacob, to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes... Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. And, and here's kind of my demand. Do not bury me in Egypt. That is the kindness and faithfulness I'm asking for. Now, this description is very similar to earlier chapter of Genesis back in 24. And if you remember the story, it's when Abraham told his servant to go get a, a wife for his son Isaac. We're going to look at it. At least I think we are. One, two, three. See, there it is. This is um, Abraham talking. He says to the senior servant, which is unnamed, but we, we kind of guessed his name way back in 24, the one in charge of all that he had. He says, put your hand under my thigh. The same thing Jacob just said. But look what Abraham says. I want you to swear by the Lord. Swear to God, in other words, and the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of these Canaanites among whom I am living. So they're both making the same kind of condition, if you will. Put your hand under my thigh. Which sounds kind of weird to us, doesn't it? Well, I'm not going to get too graphic, but I did this way back in 24 because I think I was the one teaching that night. Under my thigh really means near my covenant. And if you know your Old Testament, the covenant was a covenant of circumcision. They're saying it's not equal to the covenant of circumcision, but it's in the same neighborhood, so put your hand under my thigh. This is serious business. And then Abraham said, swear to the Lord. Now Jacob, Israel, said, swear to me. And we'll talk about that in a second. But either way, it's like this is my last will, this is my last testament, I'm making this as serious as I can make it. I, I can't make it equal to my covenant with God, but this is my covenant with you. This is super important to me, in other words. And both of those guys felt that way. One about a wife for his son because he did not want a pagan wife in the family. In this case, Jacob is adamant, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. And we'll read that in our next verse in verse 30. But when I rest with my father, in other words, when I die, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Then look what Joseph says. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me. Not swear to God. Swear to me, Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel, or Jacob, worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So there's kind of some good and bad both in, in, in this little passage. And it's not really bad, by the way. But, you know, Abraham said swear to the Lord. That would be the good. Jacob, Israel, said, swear to me. So I think 
Anyway, they're using the name Israel, but there's probably a little bit of Jacob still left because he's not saying swear to God. He said swear to me. But he's also doing a lot of good things, though. Let's give Jacob some credit here because I don't want to be harsh on Jacob without giving him some praise. Look what he also knows. Israel, Jacob, knows that Egypt is not the land God promised me. i got to go back where God promised. He also understands it's his obligation being the patriarch of this family, it's his obligation, not just for himself, but for everybody to return there. Because he, he really understands, finally, he didn't seem to in some of these earlier chapters, but he finally understands, I have inherited the Abraham covenant. It was Abraham's, Isaac, now I'm the holder of it, and I'm eventually going to pass it to my son. So now we're going to start chapter 48. We're not going to finish it, but we're going to get started with a little bit of 48. So flip ahead to 48, and we're going to start in verse 1. Continuation of this same story. 48.1 says, Sometime later, Joseph was told your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him to go visit. When Jacob was told your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and set up on the bed, in the bed. So he's kind of, in some ways, it sounds like anyway, on his deathbed. Now, he's not immediately dying. It's one of those long, prolonged, you know, maybe bedridden type deathbed things. But he hears Joseph and his grandsons are coming, and he rallies and sits up. So verse 3 is when Jacob um, and Joseph kind of meet. It says, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. That's also Bethel, by the way in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me, and he said to me, in other words, he said, God said this to me, said this directly, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. I will give you this land as an everlasting possession. Don't miss that, everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So Israel slash Jacob, is retelling what happened at Luz or Bethel to his son. Remember, they were apart. He said, God personally told me these things. I would get the promise. I would have this covenant. I would be the, the caretaker of it. And he's given that land to our family as a promise, and it's an everlasting promise and an everlasting possession. By the way, where's Israel today? Still own that everlasting piece of land. When you look at the news, it might look terrible. Things are going bad. God gave them that land, the promised land, and they won't be removed anymore off of it. They were for a period, but when they came back this last time in 48, they're there to stay. So yes, the news is, is bad. We pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But don't lose hope. It's an everlasting possession, no matter what all the countries around seem to be doing to them. But let's talk about what Jacob's reference. He said, God spoke to me at Luz, or Luz. Um, remember the dream Jacob's Ladder, when I kind of joked about him sleeping on a rock pillow, and I'm like, how could you do that? And that vision, that dream of angels descending up and down a ladder, that happened at this city he's referencing, Luz or Bethel. And he's remembering that now. And it's important to remember our history with God, isn't it? Which is our next point to write down, by the way. 
Remembering what God did, in other words, did in the past, that's what helps our faith stay strong as we wait on him to finish what he is doing, is still doing as we even sit in this room. Because if we use our own human mind, we can kind of lose hope. We get like, oh, I don't see a way out of this thing. Remember what God did. Don't we all have a story in our mind about what God did, how good God was to us? If nothing else, think about your salvation. That was the best day of your life. If we remember what he did in our own past, that's one of the ways we get through these tough times when it doesn't look like there's a lot of hope because God is still doing things. Even though we think things are grim, he's not done. God is not done yet. He's not done with Israel yet, by the way. That's where he's coming back to in, in times in Revelation. So if you're struggling with something in your life right this moment, tonight, think about what God did for you in the past and use that to believe what he's going to do when he finishes what he's currently doing, even though you can't see it. Verse 5, now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. This is Israel or Jacob speaking. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, and that's huge, by the way. We'll talk about that. Just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. He's really adopting them, essentially. And the territory they inherit will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So he's saying, these two are now my sons. They're, they're grafted into my, my tribe. They're not just your grandsons. They're, they're now equal to my two sons. And the two names he used, by the way, to reference Reuben and Simeon, that's his first and second born. So he's not just adopting them. He's given them the status of first and second born son in his genealogy. So what that really means to us is they have now been elevated from grandson to two sons of the highest position in the family. And by the way, this verse, and we hear through Scripture sometime about the half-tribes of, of Manasseh and Ephraim. This is where this starts, really right here. Because when they are brought into the family like that, as first and second born, they now have a portion of the inheritance when they go into the promised land. And by the way, it can be confusing when you read Scripture because Ephraim and Joseph are sometimes used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. Manasseh is usually separate, but Ephraim and Joseph... They both mean the tribe of Joseph, and they kind of, Scripture uses them different places, and it's the same, same people, but different name. They're kind of interchangeable. But let's kind of rabbit trail off on the tribe before we end here for a second, because it just talked about two sons, and I already told you there will eventually be tribes in, in the promised land. Well, in Revelation, and we went through that on a Wednesday night a while back, um, Twelve tribes were mentioned, if you remember, in end times. And then if you were here that night, we talked about there was 144,000 that were sealed, and then it was 12,000 from each tribe. That's in Revelation 7, verse 3. Let's look at it. Here's what it says. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal. And this is all the devastation, the bowls of wrath, and the plagues that are coming. Until we seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000, excuse me, from all of the tribes of Israel. 
And I skip down and give you the list because it says 12,000 from this tribe, this tribe, this tribe. This is the list. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Natali, Manasseh, the one we just read about, Simeon, Levi, Iskar, Zebulon, Joseph. doesn't say Ephraim. It says Joseph. Here we go right, right away, the interchangeable names. But it's the same people. And Benjamin. So there's the list of end-time tribes. But if you know your Bible, every now and then somebody will ask me, then what happened to Dan? Remember, Dan was a tribe. What happened to poor Dan? Well, poor Dan did some poor, terrible choices, is my answer, and we don't really, we're not clearly told, but um, if you look at your Bible history, that's where they had a lot of idolatry. The tribe of Dan led the nation into idolatry, the northern area of Israel. They, at one point, had a golden calf in Dan, and then other people think they just turned pagan and were slowly absorbed by different tribes in the area. But either way, they're not mentioned in, in times. It's Ephraim and Manasseh, and there's only 12. And by the way, 12 is a big, big number to God. I'll give you just a handful of examples, and then we'll get back to our final few verses. Think about even modern times. How many hours are in a day for us? 12. How many months in a year? 12. Did we just randomly come up with that? No, God steered us to, to come up with that. But even in Scripture, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. We just saw 12,000 sealed Israelites from each tribe. But one day when we see heaven, heaven has 12 gates made of 12 pearls, and there's 12 angels stationed at those gates. Then the tree of life that we read about, how many fruits from the tree of life? Guess. You got it. Just 12. Another 12. And there's a bunch more. That's a tiny short list. So 12 is important to God. So he adds and subtracts to the tribes to always keep it 12. It's got to be 12. Um, too bad we're not 12. I don't think I want to be 12 anyway, do you? That wasn't a great year for me. 12. What did I know at 12? Nothing. And I wouldn't even say that's why I say it's a bad year. I wasn't saved yet. Back to our text. Let me get off this rabbit trail. Verse 7. It's kind of sad, this, this part of the text. Um, this is Jacob talking. He says, he's talking to his son. He says, because he just talked about, you know, how good God was and I've taken your two sons. Now he's going to totally change topics and say, as I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So she died, and he buried her beside the road. He never made it to the tomb of his ancestors. So he's grieving. He's still, this is years and years and years later, but clearly he's really not over Rachel's death and the sadness. So my question tonight, are any of you grieving? Are any of you sad? Because remember our title, Don't Lose Hope. Our hope is in the Lord. If you're grieving, talk to somebody about it. You know, we have a great class, by the way, here at Calvary called Grief Share. We might even have a slide. Um, we have some leaders that are in this room right now that help run it, by the way. So no matter how long your loss was, if you have a loss like Jacob's describing, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a son, maybe it's a best friend, a family member, 
the leaders of this class and the people in the class are all grieving past losses. They're here to help you. It's kind of a national program. They take you through steps of healing. Jacob, sounds like, could have used grief share. So if that's you, don't miss out. And also, if you are grieving, let us pray for you. Maybe go to Monday prayer night and get anointed with oil and have the elders pray over you for healing from that grief. Don't lose hope, though, is the main thing. That's our theme tonight. I've said it more and more, more than once. So no matter how bad things, maybe you're not lost of a loved one. Maybe you're grieving. You're, you're, you don't have a place to stay. I don't have a job. My family doesn't like me anymore. They've kind of disowned me. Don't lose hope. God's got this. We're going to close in prayer, but um, don't miss next week. Jacob, Israel, is going to pray this long blessing over his sons and his family. And some of them are pretty good, but some of them aren't so good because his sons didn't behave so well. So let me just pray us out. Lord, tonight, thank you for your word. Let us pray, Father, if anyone's here, then they don't have hope right now, that they would just realize their only hope is in you. They would also get some help if they're grieving over a lost loved one by maybe seeking out the leaders of Grief Share and sign up for that class. Lord, you love us and you, you want to help us when we are sad and grieving. So, Lord, you, you do a mighty work in, in anybody right now that's grieving a loss. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. See you this weekend. And don't miss the family information meeting at 4 o'clock on Sunday.